Escape pod. One, two, three. September 13th, 2007. Today's story, Mail Spore, and the Sleeping Dane, by Jonathan Sullivan. Hello, and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely. This week we have another fantasy story, but one with an unusual crossover into physics. It's a long story, so I won't talk much here, but I want to give a quick line about science and religion. These days it's more and more science versus religion, and that doesn't really make me happy. It's not historically grounded. Some of our greatest scientists and mathematicians, such as Newton and Leibniz and Descartes, were also deep religious thinkers. Albert Einstein was highly spiritual, and Niels Bohr, well, we'll get to him in a minute. So, how did we get from many ages of religious scientists to the current era, when 93% of surveyed members of the National Academy of Sciences are either atheists or agnostics? More to the point, why the hostility between religion and science? This is just my personal opinion, but I think a lot of it comes down to dogmatism on both sides. Religious conservatives, perhaps threatened by a world that's changing more rapidly than their beliefs can adapt, fight more and more fiercely for ideas that are sometimes absurd given our current understanding of the world. Scientists, on the other side, get very cynical about this and conclude, perhaps too hastily, that anything that isn't empirical doesn't have relevance to people at all. There's a prejudice there that can block out the sorts of guidance and meaning that religion can offer for people. Just as you can't claim a flat Earth or that evolution doesn't happen and have any real thinking credibility these days, crying out that God is dead says a lot more about the crier than about God. I think there's a middle ground there, and I speak as a published religious authority. Ask me about the invisible pink unicorn sometime. So, having now annoyed everyone in my audience, let's get to today's story. We're proud to present Niels Bohr and the Sleeping Dane by Jonathan Sullivan. Dr. Sullivan lives in Michigan, his stories Imperial and Platypus Girl have run here before, and he's narrated for us often. He's an emergency room physician and a neuroscientist studying the mechanisms of brain cell death. If that's not enough of a contribution to the world, he's also Escape Pod's reviews editor, and responsible for most of those movie reviews that draw so much debate. This story appeared in Strange Horizons in July 2005, and was also in the Year's Best Fantasy VI anthology, edited by David Hartwell and Katherine Kramer. So keep your head down and try not to draw too much attention. It's story time. Niels Bohr and the Sleeping Dane by Jonathan Sullivan The Gestapo had imposed curfews and roadblocks for the first time since the occupation of Denmark. They stopped our train at Helgoland, where the tidy streets of Copenhagen blend into the sparse woods and open grey sky of coastal Zealand. An SS captain and two men with short rifles clambered into our car. They demanded papers from every passenger, and I knew that by nightfall my father and I would be on another train, bound for darkness. The man who sat across from us was also a Jew, but he would not go to the camps with us. Niels Henrik David Bohr would remain in Denmark, or perhaps he would be sent to Berlin, but he would be no less a prisoner. The black uniforms and burnished weapons cut into the reality of the railcar like nightmares. You could hear the shared thought of everyone aboard. Not here. Not in Copenhagen. 
there's some mistake. The Danes had lived with a monster in their house for two years, and they had learned to ignore it. The monster looked like them. It seemed to be housebroken, but it kept out of sight, hiding under the bed while Denmark slept. But finally, inevitably, the monster had emerged, and it was ravenous. Looking for us. The SS captain was a handsome young man, square-jawed and blue-eyed, Hitler's Aryan ideal in the flesh. But his pale complexion reminded me of a wax doll, his ink-black uniform with its red armband and skull insignia, the regalia of death, enhanced his pallor. In his eyes I saw the deep hunger that drives a man to devour his fellows. He evaluated the passengers, his head cranking from side to side with each click of his black leather boots, as if clockwork connected his legs to his neck. He stopped a few rows away from us to examine a young couple. Speaking in curt, inflected Danish, he demanded their papers. The man, a swarthy fellow with curly black hair, rummaged nervously in a satchel. The captain put up his hand. That's all right, he said. It won't be necessary. The man nodded with relief. You are Juden, yes? The captain smiled. One of the most vivid memories of my life is how the air on the bus changed at that moment, suddenly cloying and thick. A smell of quiet panic, like sweat and rotten meat. The young man blanched. I am a Danish citizen, he said, voice quavering. The officer's expression was not so much a smile as a gash cut into his face. You are a subject of the German Reich, he said. He made a command with his fingers. On your feet. The young man stood, and he and his wife were led off the bus. The woman carried an infant bundled in blue wool. I have often wondered what became of that family. Did they die at Theresienstadt? Dachau? Auschwitz? I still have nightmares about the look in that young woman's eyes. The captain approached us. His gaze settled on me for a moment, then passed to my father. The Danish resistance had told us we must pass for everyday people. Papa had retorted that we were people every day, but he hadn't really argued. He had shaved that majestic, iron-gray beard, trading his broad-brimmed black hat and dark coat for the dress of a goy. Papa had strange gifts, but I could not imagine he would deceive the pale Halbsturmfuhrer. My father's essence would shine through the rumpled khaki trousers and thick sweater of green wool, and any fool would see him as a rabbi of the Hasidim. Who could look at my father and fail to see what he was? Until the day I die, his will be the human face of Yahweh, fierce but serene, severe but kind, deeply etched with sadness and humor, encompassing the mystery of opposites that are one. Brilliant, forceful Chokmah and dark, gentle Bina united in Tiferet, the living heart of Israel that is the center of the universe. No man who met my father, Jew or Gentile, failed to be awed by him, least of all me. When he saw Papa, the Hauptsturmfuhrer frowned. Papa said, Good morning. The captain nodded, his frown slowly unwinding. Good morning. Heil Hitler. He quickly looked away from Papa's eyes, and next gave a cursory glance to the brother and sister seated next to us. With their light brown hair and sullen expressions, the two teenagers could not possibly have looked more generically and ethnically Danish. They were, in fact, armed members of the threadbare Danish resistance. They didn't get a second look. The captain turned to scrutinize the three people in the seat facing ours. 
A frumpy man with unruly red hair pretended to look out the window. Hans Nielsen was the father of the two young partisans. Next to him sat an elegant woman in her mid-fifties, with a slender neck and fine Nordic features. Beside her, directly across from me, sat the father of the modern atom. Bohr had a paunch, but he was still a lanky man, with that characteristic Danish angularity and length of bone. His brown suit fit him with a balanced, casual elegance. His features had sagged beneath the weight of the occupation, the constant threat from the Nazis who circled him like hyenas, waiting for him to go too far in his vocal defense of Danish culture against the Reich. Thick-lipped, balding, and aged, he should have been ugly. But the intelligence was there, quiet and profound, like clean water pouring out of a rocky cave. I like to think that, even if I had not known him as the man who had resurrected the corpse of Rutherford's atom and made it dance to the strange music of Planck and Einstein, I would have loved him the moment I saw him. Herr Dr. Bohr! The captain's cruel smile returned. What a relief! We've been very concerned about you. Hans, the frumpy man at the window, forced himself to look, a film of defeat in his eyes. The two young partisans next to Papa stared at the floor. I thought of the weapons beneath their coats. In their stillness I could sense a gathering, desperate violence. Bohr sighed, looked up at the Gestapo captain with calm resignation, and took his wife's hand. He started to get up. "'You are mistaken, sir,' Papa said. I wanted to scream at him. "'No! This creature has already passed us over, and now you beg for his attention?' I was nineteen years old. I had followed Bohr's career for half my life with something bordering on worship. A terrible miracle of circumstance had finally brought me into his presence. But at that moment his life meant nothing next to my own. Niels Bohr was already a prisoner of the Third Reich. Nothing could stop that now, save some desperate stupidity from Hans and his children. Papa's action could only put us on a boxcar to Theresienstadt. The Gestapo captain gave Papa another nervous glare. What did you say? I said you are mistaken. This is my brother-in-law, Karl Gerwuld. This woman is my sister, Frida. The captain's features hardened, but Papa's stare held him prisoner. This man's face is known throughout the world, he said, uncertainty creeping into his voice. This man is Niels Bohr, and he will be taken into protective custody. Take a closer look. Papa said. The captain obeyed. Bohr was unmistakable. He shook his head, frowning. I'm quite sure. It won't work, Papa. You're killing us. Look at me. The captain turned. Confusion and fear grew in his eyes. This is my brother-in-law, Karl Gerwuld. Papa's belly tensed in and out beneath his sweater. I could almost see the power surging between Papa's Tiferet and the captain's Yesod. It would be embarrassing if you presented him to your superiors as somebody he is not. You wouldn't want to be embarrassed. I... This is my brother-in-law, Karl Gerwuld. The captain licked his lips. I should see his papers. Yours too. The young man next to Papa reached into his coat, tensing for action. I thought of the last time Papa had tried this. My mother had died anyway. That won't be necessary, Papa said. 
This is my brother-in-law, Karl Gerwuld. By now, everyone was staring at Papa, except for the two SS men checking papers a few rows up. Bohr himself was transfixed by the motion of Papa's belly, pumping in and out like a bellows. The partisans watched like mystified children. And I could see from the young captain's face that Papa's eyes had become the center of his universe. The German's jaw slackened, then snapped shut. His glassy eyes came back into focus. His hand went to rest on his holster, and I knew that Papa had failed again. But the captain turned away and did not look at us again. He swaggered back the way he had come, hand at his holster in a posture of Prussian authority. He ordered his men off the train, and moments later we were clattering up the Zealand coast toward Elsinore. Nobody spoke for a long time. I stared at my knees, running the episode over and over. Eight years earlier, Papa's power had failed to save Mama from the brown shirts. But even before that, I had begun to doubt whether I could follow his path to knowledge. I looked over at him. He sat with eyes half-closed, as if he were drunk. No, I refused to regret my decisions. I refused to feel guilty for taking my own path. But for not having the courage to tell him, for that I could feel guilty. And I did. Sir, Bohr reached over to touch Papa's knee. We are grateful for whatever it was you did. I thought for sure we would. He shook his head. His wife managed a thin smile. She had not let go of her husband's arm. Papa put out his hand to shake with Bohr and his wife. I'm Itzak Goldblum, my son, David. My wife, Margaret. Oh, I'm, uh... Yes, I know. Papa shrugged. But you certainly look like my brother-in-law, Carl. Bohr's eyes twinkled. Do you have a brother-in-law? Papa smiled at Margaret. I don't even have a sister. The Boris laughed. Niels looked over at me and smiled. Nice to meet you, David. I shook that noble hand and gawked at him, trying to think of something to say. Forgive him, Papa said. If his brain were working now, he'd tell you that he's a great admirer of yours. Bohr nodded. Well, I'm honored. A polite dismissal of the schoolboy. He turned back to Papa. I have to ask you, what did you do to that Gestapo man? Barely a man, Papa said, shrugging. A real man I could not have managed. He was more of a golem. Bohr frowned. I beg your pardon. A golem. A fairy tale monster, yes? An empty creature of wood or clay that can be filled with the will of another. A strong man cannot be manipulated so easily. But a golem... Margaret leaned forward to listen. The two partisans were whispering with their father. Bohr shifted in his seat to retrieve a pipe from his pocket. A golem. A man like that, Papa said, is empty. You just have to know how to fill him. Dress him up in an imposing uniform, fill his head with grand ideas, and point him at a target. The poor Germans. Bohr, tamping tobacco into the bowl, shook his head. The poor Germans? Papa shrugged. They've become a nation of golem. To make a golem of clay is a sin, a mortal sin. To make a golem of a man, is that any better? Perhaps God will punish me, although I didn't create that creature. Hitler has tapped into the unconscious, the world of dreams. Bohr lit his pipe. You sound like Herr Dr. Freud. Papa reached up to stroke his beard, found it missing, 
scratched his chin. Yes, well, there's little that's new in Freud, except for the words. Bohr took exception, and they got into a friendly argument over whether Freud was a scientist or a metaphysician. It was exhilarating to watch the two most important men in my life joust and find each other worthy. And maddening, because I wasn't part of it. I could quote every word Bohr had ever published, almost verbatim. But for now, I was just the boy. By the time we passed the low hills of Klampenborg, halfway to Elsinore, I was seething. Papa was doing it deliberately, another ploy to keep me in his world, out of Bohr's. Almost before I could read, Papa had taught me that numbers were God's brick and mortar. To his lasting chagrin, I'd followed that teaching in a different direction than he'd intended. While he sought mystery and beauty in the Torah and Sefer Yetzirah, I had found my own truth in the writings of Bohr and Dirac, Heisenberg and Born. Of course, Papa said as the argument wound down, I'm just an old rabbi. There's nothing I can point to and say, there's my proof. Herr Freud is in the same boat, but a man like you, you can put a handle on wisdom, no? Bohr shook his head. I'm not sure what you mean. Papa looked up, begging the roof for patience. He's not sure what I mean. You are the man who discovered the atom, no? Bohr shifted uncomfortably. Hans leaned forward over Margaret's lap. Not everybody on this goddamn train is known to us, he said. I know the cat's out of the bag, but you could still keep it down to a dull roar. He sat back and shook his head at his two children. He didn't discover the atom, I told Papa in a whisper. He described the atom in terms of Planck's quantized energy. Ah, Papa said, a description. A description, I said, that predicts atomic spectra, including the Zeeman perturbations, to the nanometer. A description that rescues the Rutherford atom from its own angular momentum. A description that explains the periodic table with a few quantum numbers. Bohr shrugged. An imperfect description, he said, but he was smiling at me. Ah, numbers. Papa shook his finger in affirmation. Yes, I knew it would come down to numbers. Bohr's grin widened. Why is that? Because everything does. My tradition also describes the universe with numbers. I am half Jewish, you know, Bohr said. In middle school, I dabbled in the Kabbalah. And what did you learn from dabbling in the Kabbalah? Papa looked at Bohr, but I knew he was speaking to me. Bohr shrugged. Not much. Not much because you dabbled. But in science you did not dabble. There you gave your all, and you learned a great deal. Am I wrong? I suppose that's true. Bohr's pipe unfurled an aromatic veil that hid his expression from me. My son, he dabbles in everything, Papa said. He dabbles in physics. He dabbles in the Talmud and the Zohar. Any more dabbling, he ends up a nebbish. The conversation aborted. There was only the clattering of the tracks and the whispers of the partisans. Bohr puffed his pipe and pretended to look at his feet. It was Margaret who saved me. Margaret Bohr, who challenged me with her steely Nordic eyes and a look on her face. A look she might have given her own son Christian, had she not lost him in an accident. A look my mother might have given me, had my father not lost her to the brown shirts. The secret message on her face was one of empathy, but not pity. A tiny nod and a curl of her lips that said, Are you going to let these two old men dismiss you like that? Fight! I never dabble, 
I said. Not in Kabbalah, not in physics. Bohr fidgeted. Papa waved a dismissive hand and snorted. I reached into my coat for the only scrap of paper I had, the letter from Cambridge. I unfolded it and turned it over quickly so Papa could not read it. I set it on my knee, blank side up, and began to sketch out the tree of life, ten holy sephirot connected by twenty-two paths. My father, I said, is an international authority on the Zohar and Sefer Yetzirah. In his last book, The Song of Adam Kadmon, he says, The sephirot are not things. Bohr, whose old friend Heisenberg had once said the same of atoms, sat up and looked at my drawing. The sephirot, the ten nodes of existence, are numbers, like everything else, I said. As my father writes, they are musical notes sung by God. Thus, vibrations. Vibration implies frequency. Frequency implies energy. The sephirot are the quantum numbers, if, if you'll forgive me, that describe all creation. Bohr smiled. The expression was indulgent, but not patronizing, and I had his attention. The right branch of the tree is creative, impulsive, masculine, positive. The left is receptive, nurturing, feminine, negative. The duality reconciles in the middle trunk the synthesis of opposites that drives all creation. The tree is a map of the universe. Bohr shook his head, but he kept listening. I kept scribbling. For example, in Adam Kadmon, my father maps the tree onto human physiology. Catabolism, motor processes, and the sympathetic nervous system appear on the right. All the functions that involve action, the release of energy. Anabolism, sensory processes, and parasympathetic activity map to the left side. Then I pointed with my pen at Tiferet, the sephirot in the center of the tree, the one that connected to all the others. The heart, Bohr offered. Ah, he sees, Papa said. I shook my head. No, I don't think that's right. What? Papa leaned over to look at my drawing. Meshigas, of course it's right. I hesitated, but then I caught Margaret out of the corner of my eye again. No, I said, and continued scribbling. The heart is a circulatory organ. It belongs at Netza, on the lower left trunk. No, Tiferet is beauty, the thing created. Balance, integration, essence. And so... Bohr asked, What is the Tiferet of human physiology, young David? I flushed under Papa's withering glare. The central nervous system, I said, and wrote it in. The brain and spinal cord. Bohr's pipe had gone cold from neglect. Papa chewed on his lower lip and stared at my drawing. We can also map the atom, I said. Across the top of the page I wrote N-L-M-S. These are the four quantum numbers that underlie the structure of matter, shell, subshell, magnetic, spin. But to describe matter, we also need to describe the electric force that binds electrons to the nucleus and the force that holds the nucleus together. We need mass and charge. I kept talking, kept scribbling, my hands and brain working together in a storm of delight. When I finished, Papa shook his head. Huh, my son a Kanaka, Mr. Big Shot. A smile grew on Bohr's thick lips, and he took the paper from my hand, so he didn't have to look at it upside down. I was afraid Papa would read the other side. This is really quite beautiful, Bohr said. Papa stared at me, and my delight intertwined with my dread. I had not told him of the scholarship I had won to study physics at Cambridge, recently announced in the letters. I had avoided confronting him by telling myself it didn't matter. 
We had lost everything in Germany. Everything. Now Denmark was a mess, and if the resistance couldn't get us across the Elsinore Sound and into Sweden, I might never go to university at all. So I willed myself to stop worrying about it, to bask in that perfect moment when the two men I loved and admired most looked at me with new eyes and nodded their heads with wonder and respect. Bohr studied my drawing for a long time. I don't think he wanted to give it back. Hans had made arrangements with the engineer, who stopped the train a kilometer shy of Elsinore Station. Seventeen Jews, including the Boers, disembarked at this unscheduled stop. Hans and his children led us to the nearby bus stand. There we caught a ride to Kronborg Castle, where Claudius had murdered Hamlet's father, and Hamlet had murdered Claudius. The fortress of stone and timber overlooks the Elsinore Sound at its narrowest point. From this vantage, Denmark had once imposed her will on all naval traffic through the Baltic. But Danish power had long since ebbed, and Kronborg Castle, with its wide moats and towers topped with spires of bluing copper, had become a museum. The Nazis had not closed the castle, just as they had not interfered in most aspects of Danish life, until now. The bus pulled up to a wide bridge of wood and iron, half a kilometer from the castle. Our party joined a dozen sightseers who had already gathered around a tour guide. She was a plump woman with thick glasses and the bearing of a schoolmistress. While she collected the tour fee, she lectured us in a nasal, sing-song voice. Stay with me. The tour must end on time because of the curfew. No photos. Don't touch. Hans stood behind Papa and me. She is our contact, he told us. But you stay with me, not her, understand? Just before the tour enters the courtyard, we split off and go to the old stables. He moved on, whispering into other ears, including Boar's. Hans's son and daughter stood on either side of the group, scanning the area. My gaze kept wandering past the gorgeous mass of the castle, across the grey waters of the sound, to the swelling of land on the other side. Sweden. Neutral Sweden. Our guide led us through a wooden gate and over a cobblestone footpath to the castle, lecturing all the way. Somebody built this in that year. Over there was the residence of so-and-so. As we approached Kronborg, the majesty of the structure became more imposing, and for a moment I forgot our peril. I had seen my share of German castles. Outside our hometown of Heidelberg sits a seventeenth-century ruin of lichened stone. But Kronborg was huge, well-preserved, and graceful. The sun broke through the clouds, and I craned my neck to watch the spires rise into the bright sky. It was a perfect moment. I looked over at Papa, and he smiled. We crossed the moat, our feet drumming the ancient drawbridge like the hooves of cattle. The guide continued her jabbering, leading us into a broad cobblestone courtyard with a grand fountain at the center. I was sorry I wouldn't get to see more, but now Hans gave us a grim nod over his shoulder. As the rest of the group filtered into the sunlit courtyard, the Jews split off and took their own path into hiding. As usual, I thought. Hans and his children led us down a narrow path that ran along the outer moat and into the abandoned stables, a labyrinth of rotting woods set into the castle's eastern wall. There was no lighting here, and as we followed Hans into a maze of abandoned stalls, my mood darkened. Soon we were deep within the entrails of the castle. Hans led us through a broad wooden door and down a narrow staircase, 
we emerged into utter darkness. A yellow flicker from his electric torch cut into the black like a firefly, moving crazily through the void. Then the light of a candle mounted on the wall began to etch out our surroundings. Hans lit two more, illuminating a place of despair. "'Looks like a dungeon,' Papa said, and everybody turned to frown at him. Papa was always willing to say things people would rather not hear. "'Catacombs,' said Hans. "'But the dungeons aren't far.' The chamber was oppressively small. Rough stone curved just overhead, damp and ugly. Boar had to stoop. Gravel and dirt crunched beneath our feet. The walls were abrasive and bare. Even lichen refused to grow in this place. But one creature did dwell here. Seated on a throne of rock against one wall, an eight-foot-tall Viking slept with his chin on his chest, a broadsword across his knees. The statue of grey stone was exquisite and menacing. Even in repose, the warrior's features were implacable and noble. His legs were as thick as my torso. He wore a simple helmet and a tunic of mail, but his thick arms were bare. A massive shield sat propped against his thigh. "'Why do they keep this down here?' I asked Hans. "'It's beautiful.' "'Holga Dansky sleeps here,' he said matter-of-factly, as if I were an idiot.' "'Well, now we know, don't we?' Papa said. "'We'll be here a few hours,' Hans said, settling into a dark corner. "'Try to rest. You especially, Dr. Bohr. Sweden is just a way station for you.' "'I understand,' Bohr said, and like everybody else, he began searching for a stretch of wall. He removed his coat and spread it over the dirt so Margaret could sit. He lit his pipe, and the sweet aroma was a great improvement.' Some in our group whispered among themselves, but the close walls of the catacomb magnified every sound, and so for a long time there was only silence and, finally, the sound of Hans's snoring. I, too, was exhausted. I sat beside Papa in the gravel beneath the stone warrior. Soon I joined Holger Dansky in sleep. I dreamed of my father's bookstore in the Jewish quarter of Heidelberg, the brown shirts had come. One stood out front to trumpet his epithets, wearing sandwich boards that said, Warning! Germans don't buy from Jews! While I tended the shop, four men came inside to ransack the shelves and break the windows. They beat me with fists and clubs, doubling me over with pain and shame. My parents came down the stairs from our apartment. My mother screamed and rushed to my side. The leader pushed her away, called her a whore. The other three brown shirts converged on Papa, but they stepped back without laying a hand on him. He transfixed them with those dark eyes full of power, his belly rippling beneath his coat. "'You need to go now,' he said, and they turned away. But the leader had his own iron, his own malignant strength. He was too deep or too shallow for Papa's power to fill him. He cursed at his men, mocking them. He struck with his club, and Papa crumpled to the floor. Like cowardly dogs emboldened by blood, the others took his example. While they beat Papa, the leader kicked me in the face. As I lay choking on my own blood, he seized my mother by her hair and dragged her toward the street. To be met at the doorway by Niels Henrik David Bohr. The Bohr I knew from books and photos— the young gangly boar who had gone to England in 1911 to change the world. He held up his atom of spinning orbitals, vibrating with latent energy. 
His fingers broke it apart and released a brilliance that blinded the Nazis and dispelled them like a vapor. When the brilliance faded, only Papa and I remained. My mother was gone. The catacomb was dark enough to nourish the dream a few minutes into waking. Papa had taught me to cling to my dreams and interrogate them. They were wisdom from Yesod, or even from Da'at, and not to be discarded without examination. My eyes adjusted slowly. Bor and my father sat together at the stone feet of Holger Dansky. Their low voices echoed off the walls. I promise, Bor was saying, I did my best work at Cambridge, and I still have friends there. It won't be difficult. His words intertwined with my dream, a good fit. But not difficult? If the resistance managed to get Bor to England, his task would be difficult in the extreme. It was no secret that Bohr might be instrumental in splitting the atom for the Allies, if Heisenberg didn't beat him to it. My father's path might lead to wisdom and a sort of ineffable power, but Bohr's path, the path I had chosen, led to a more reliable power, the kind of power that might rescue humanity from the grip of the Axis. My father, bloody and helpless, splayed on the floor with his tattered books. Bohr at the doorway, splitting his atom to dispel evil. The dream faded. Neither path would bring Mama back to me. He's awake, Papa said. Welcome back. Better you shouldn't sleep if you're going to be so fitful. I went to sit with them. Everybody else sat quietly, except the two young partisans who stood at the entrance to the catacomb, smoking. Hans had abandoned his corner. Bohr followed my gaze. He left at nightfall to check the area. He should be returning soon. I nodded, rubbing the sleep from my eyes. A long silence ensued. I realized I had interrupted something. Papa looked up at Holger Dansky. My son is right. It's a strange thing to find in such a place. This is where he belongs, Bohr said. Holger Dansky is our national hero. The Sleeping Dane, we call him. This statue was put here in 1911, just before I went to England. The Sleeping Dane fought many battles for Denmark abroad, but eventually he grew weary of war. He came back to Elsinore and fell asleep on this spot. Bohr lit his pipe again, and I smiled. He seemed unable to speak without a pipe in his hand. They say he is the final defender of Denmark. When invaders come, the Sleeping Dane will awaken to save us. Bohr gave Papa a fatalistic smile. But still he sleeps. So much for legends. Papa looked up at Holger Dansky for a long time. Finally he said, You're wrong, Dr. Bohr. The sleeping Dane is awake. Bohr shook his head, bemused. The occupation has been almost painless up to now. Papa scratched at his bare chin. You Danes have had it easy. The Germans pretend to respect your neutrality. And you pretend you still have something to respect. Bohr frowned, then nodded. Yes, I'm afraid so. But since the rumors started two days ago that the Nazis would round us up like cattle, what have you seen? The king's government refuses to cooperate and resigns in protest. The newspapers speak out against the Nazis when they would do better to keep silent. The Danish people take us in to hide us from the Gestapo. Hans and his children risk their lives to smuggle us to Sweden. The sleeping Dane is awake, Herr Dr. Bohr. You should be proud of your people. Bohr stared at Holger Dansky. 
his chin quivered, and again I sensed how heavily the occupation had weighed on him. He put out his arm to clasp Papa's shoulder. I'm glad we met, Rabbi. Hans emerged from the shadows. He looked grim. I need everyone's attention. Everybody stirred, groaning at the cold in their muscles. The Gestapo is on the castle grounds, Hans said. Muttered fear echoed through the catacomb. Margareth put her hands over her mouth. Bor went to put his arms around her. Hans waved us into quiet. Unless more are on the way, it's unlikely they'll find us before the rendezvous. It's a small detail, our friend from this morning and a half-dozen troops. But in half an hour we'll have to cross five hundred meters of open ground under a full moon down to the beach. We'll be exposed. If we're lucky, they'll still be searching the castle proper. How did they know? somebody asked. Considering what happened this morning, Hans said, we're lucky we made it this far. We hadn't anticipated the search at Helgoland. I suspect the Hauptsturmfuhrer came to his senses. He looked over at us. Papa shrugged. I should solve all your problems? Nobody's perfect. Hans managed a grim smile, then disappeared with his son. His daughter stayed with us. She produced a luger and checked the chamber and magazine. We watched her with mute terror. Papa withdrew a bundle of cloth from the pocket of his wrinkled khakis. As he unfolded it, I saw what it was. His talus. He wrapped the prayer shawl over his shoulders. Hear, O Israel. Barely a whisper, but in that awful place it still carried my father's power. We all went to him, all except the girl. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. As my father intoned the Shema and repeated it twice, my heart slowed and my terror ebbed. I looked at the others, saw the calm seep into their faces. Such power! No, I had made the right choice. I knew I did not have my father's gifts. Hans reappeared alone. His forehead glistened with effort and fear. More SS have arrived. They're dispersing over the castle grounds. Silence. I'll go, Bohr said. Hans frowned, licking his lips. He was thinking about it. They're looking for me, Bohr said. As far as they know, it's just Margaret and I. If we surrender, perhaps they'll leave. The rest of us voiced our protest, but Bohr held up his hands. They won't harm us, he said. Margaret is Aryan, and I'm only half-Jewish. And I'm valuable. They think they can use me. Which is exactly why it won't do, Hans said, and it doesn't solve the problem of getting the rest of us down to the shore. No, thank you, doctor. Bohr shook his head. I thought he would weep. My son is watching for the boat, Hans said. When he gets the signal from the sound, we'll just have to run for it. Stretch your muscles. He lit a cigarette and turned away from us. I saw his daughter ask a question with her eyes. Hans shook his head. This was no time for lies. We weren't going to make it. As the group gathered at the opening of the catacomb, I went to join Papa. He stood apart from the rest, at the foot of the sleeping Dane, fingering his talus. My decision didn't matter now. This path, that path. Telling him the truth would only hurt him, gaining nothing. I looked over at Bohr, standing with the others, Margaret's face in his chest. And then at my father, praying silently. The truth gains nothing? The thought struck from within, like the stinging shame of a well-deserved slap, 
for Bor, for my father, there had never been anything but truth. There's something I have to tell you, Papa, I said, pushing against the words. Important. He spread his arms and rolled his eyes at the ceiling. Gewalt! Important, he says. His voice dropped into a coarse whisper. The Nazi wolves are at the door and they'll be tearing out our throats any minute. We need to talk about something else? Yes, because the wolves are at the door and we may not have another chance. Don't make this harder for me, Papa. His face settled into its true nature, kind and sad. You would not be a rabbi. You would not study the word of God. I took a deep breath. Not as you do, no. No, you would go to Cambridge and study the word of Bohr under your fancy scholarship. My heart skipped. You knew? Am I a schmuck? Of course I knew. I knew about Cambridge. I knew about the scholarship. I knew about the paper you published in the contest from the fancy journal to win the scholarship. He half closed his eyes, as when he recited scripture. Correlating experimental lithium spectra with Bohr model predictions of valence angular momentum by David Goldblum. He managed to smile. Such language. Yes, I knew. I gaped at him. What I did not know, he said, was when you would work up the courage to tell me, or whether you'd just elope with your books and go schlepping off into the night. He gave me an affectionate slap on the cheek. It doesn't look like I'll be schlepping anywhere, I said. I'm afraid you're right, but you told me anyway, and you didn't have to. You faced me like a man. As a man. I took a deep, shuddering breath. You're not angry? Disappointed? Again, he questioned the roof. If he's so smart, Lord, how can he be such a putz? He glowered at me. Of course I'm angry and disappointed. What, you think I'm not paying attention? Just because my son makes his own decisions doesn't mean I have to be happy about them. Hans's son appeared at the opening, breathing hard. The SS are moving this way, he said. The boat hasn't signaled yet, but I can see her moving up the sound. We can't wait. Let's move, Hans said. Papa took my face in his hands and kissed me. You are my gift to the world, he said. Now, let's run for our lives. The next few moments were a blur of jostling bodies, cold rock, and black fear. By the time we emerged from the stables, the moonlight that washed over the castle grounds seemed like midday brilliance. The ground sloped gently, five hundred meters to the water. A fishing boat waited just offshore. Do you see it? Hans asked us. There are dinghies waiting on the beach. At my signal, run as fast as you can, and don't stop. No matter what happens, you keep running. I took Papa's hand. No, he said. Better not. I'll try to keep up. Do as the man says. Now! We sprinted into the night like terrified deer. I took Papa's arm again, but he twisted away and pushed me. My fear took over then, my legs pumping away at the turf like pistons. We covered perhaps two hundred meters, spreading out in a panicky Gaussian distribution before the first shouts, the first gunshots, the first blood. Hans's daughter fell in front of me, her lower back bursting into a dark spray of gore. I stopped to help her up, but her limbs were flaccid. When I saw her eyes, I knew she was dead. More shots rang out, and I saw others fall. I stumbled back to my feet and looked over my shoulder for Papa. He should have been behind me, but by now I was the last straggler. David! A strong hand seized my arm and spun me around. It was Bohr. He had come back for me.
What are you doing, boy? Run! Where's my father? I cried. More gunshots, closer. We turned and saw at least ten SS running toward us across the green. There were more assembling on the walls above the moat. Halt! Halt! We turned to run, but the ground at our feet boiled under a rain of bullets, and we cowered with our hands in the air. Niels! Margaret's voice came from the direction of the shore, where the others were piling into the dinghies. Damn, Bohr muttered, and raised his hands a little higher. It was over, because of me. The sporadic pop-pop-pop of gunfire erupted into a hailstorm. I expected to die at that moment. Instead I heard shouting, screams, terror and confusion. From the SS troops. Bohr and I turned to look, our hands still in the air. The sleeping Dane was awake. He still had the color of stone, but his massive limbs were supple with life. The arc of his broadsword passed through two SS men, cleaving them at the waist. The sword continued its orbit, swinging overhead and then dropping vertically, biting through a soldier's helmet to split him like firewood. In the moonlight, I saw the Hauptsturmfuhrer step forward to empty his sidearm into the Dane's chest. Holger Dansky swung his shield, and the captain fell into a misshapen heap twenty yards away. More SS spilled onto the field. Their rifles might as well have been quarterstaffs. The Dane stood rooted to one spot, legs spread wide like the roots of an oak. But the sword never ceased swinging, like an electron switching between orbitals. Horizontal, vertical, oblique. Body parts and blood spread over the ground, and still the SS kept coming. I caught sight of Papa at the opening of the stables beneath the east wall, his talus hanging from his shoulders, arms stretching into the night, waving about to animate the limbs of Holger Dansky. I screamed at him, but he could not have heard me over the din of gunfire. And then he died, as a black bird spread its liquid wings across his chest. But as Golem kept cutting and killing, fully roused to bloodlust. He's gone, Bohr said. Come on! I couldn't move. I couldn't breathe. David! I couldn't even wail. David! Bohr shook me so hard that I bit my tongue. Come on! The gunfire ceased as the remaining SS finally retreated. We ran to the shoreline and splashed into the icy water of the sound. We had to swim a few yards to catch up to one of the dinghies. The others dragged us out of the water, and somebody wrapped his jacket about my wet shoulders. My teeth chattered, and it was good to be numb with cold, nothing but cold. They pulled us aboard the fishing boat a few minutes later. I stood alone, still shivering. I saw Hans and his boy fall to their knees, embracing each other with quiet grief. Margareth was in Bohr's arms, shaking with relief and rage. My fellow Jews stood at the railing and wailed for those who had fallen. As the boat turned her prow towards Sweden, I went aft for a last look at Kronborg Castle. The Dane stood in the moonlight with carnage at his feet. His shoulders slumped, the tip of his sword dragged in the dirt. Weariness seeped into his stony flesh. He shuffled toward the stables. Before he stooped into the darkness, he lay aside his shield and went down on one knee. He draped Papa's body over a massive shoulder. Then Holger Dansky took up his shield and returned to his rest. Presently I realized that Bohr and Margaret were standing next to me. They didn't say anything trite or useless. 
Margareth took my hand. Your father made arrangements with me, Bors said. For a moment he could not speak. Just in case. I have an audience with the King of Sweden tomorrow. After that, they will put me on a plane to England. You'll come with me. I shook my head. Your father told me the scholarship would pay your tuition, he said. But you'll need room and board, a good adviser, many other things. It won't be difficult. I have friends at Cambridge. He made me promise. It was only then that I wept, my hands tearing at the damp fabric of my shirt. Margaret took me into her arms, as a mother might. As I write this, I have at hand the drawing I made for my papa and Niels Bohr sixty years ago. It is yellowed and cracked from age and overhandling. Today, as on many days, I have taken it out to consult it, to make refinements, to seek inspiration, or simply to remember. Beneath the drawing sits a recent letter from the Nobel Academy, congratulating me for the work I did in the 70s on the topological analysis of ten-dimensional quantum observer interfaces. In recent years, the neuroscientists have appropriated that work as part of a fundamental new theory of consciousness, my father's gift to the world. Soon I will return to Sweden for the first time since that night. I will go by way of Denmark to visit the one who sleeps beneath Kronborg Castle. In Stockholm, I will shake hands with a king. For a few moments, the world will be mine. The world will listen. When I speak, it will not be of physics, or Kabbalah, or the nobility of science, or the power of faith. I will speak of my father, Rabbi Yitzhak Joseph Goldblum, and my other father, Niels Henrik David Bohr. I will speak of my debt to them, and how my life and work have been nothing, nothing but my effort to be worthy of them both. And that was our story. If this put you in the mood for even more father-son World War II golem stories, you might also like to check out Pseudopod 51, Brothers, by J.C. Hay, which ran at pseudopod.org a few weeks ago. I want to keep the feedback short so that we don't push this episode over an hour. Escape Pod 120, The Sundial Brigade, has been one of the most discussion-provoking episodes we've done in quite some time. The story itself was well-received. Veronica said... It left me feeling like I was looking through a peephole. I could see some of the picture, but also felt like it was way bigger than the glimpse I was able to experience. Pearson's puppeteer loved the big idea concepts in the story, and Jim said, This story does exactly what science fiction is supposed to do. It holds a funhouse mirror up to our own world and shows it to us from an odd angle, making us see it in a way that can make us uncomfortable. Some, such as Listener and Serana, disliked it for being predictable or for the characters falling too quickly into political cliché. But the discussion in our forums has gone on far beyond that, both into the implications of the UK Terrorism Act and into the nature, goals, and impact of terrorism as a force. That thread is still going on, with Mr. Tweedy, Pink Shift, Palimpsest, A. James, and others dissecting in detail such concepts as innocence and collateral damage, I'd say when a story makes people think that much, it succeeded. Thanks to everyone for giving your thoughts. 
Our comment of the week wasn't exactly about the story itself, but rather about another comment. A listener named David said that he didn't listen more than three minutes in because our choice of narrator offended him. That was great answer of the Ropecast. I ordinarily wouldn't find that worth reporting on, but Jim commented, I'm just as outraged as Dave is. There's deviant sexuality being talked about on a skate pod, and I find it unacceptable that none of it is happening to me personally. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license. You can do anything deviant you wish with it, provided you don't do it for money or make any changes public. If you like what you're hearing here, we hope that you'll tell your friends or blog about us. And if you want to help us keep our authors paid, we encourage you to consider donating via the PayPal link on our site, escapepod.org. If you like horror, check out our sister podcast, Pseudopod, at pseudopod.org, and you can buy archive discs at poddisc.com. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju, perfect for animating giant statues with swords. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. Our closing quotation comes from, who else? Danish physicist Niels Bohr, who said, The opposite of a correct statement is a false statement, but the opposite of a profound truth may well be another profound truth. We'll see you next week. Until then, have fun 